Hello, and welcome back to the AUA University podcast. Today's podcast will be a course from AUA 2018, course number 078IC, Management of Prostate Cancer, a Case-Based Approach with Emphasis on Integrating New Molecular Diagnostics into Clinical Practice. This course will provide a practical, evidence-based approach for the management of everyday problems in the management of prostate cancer using a case-based approach with example from real practices. Cases will illustrate the contemporary management of early and late stage disease with emphasis on how the new molecular diagnostic prognostic tests can be used for improved clinical decision making and screening, decisions on initial biopsy and rebiopsy, choosing and following men for active surveillance and managing PSA failures. In addition, best practice use of newer agents for management of castrate-resistant disease will be reviewed, including the potential for use of targeted therapies based on genomic analysis of advanced tumors. This course is presented by Dr. Eric Klein and Dr. Andrew Stevenson, both from the Cleveland Clinic. You can claim CME for reviewing this podcast at auau.auanet.org. I'll now turn it over to Dr. Klein. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I want to thank you brave souls who have uh, stayed to the end here. Um, We hope to entertain you and make the the two hours that you're here worthwhile. I'm happy to introduce Andrew Stevenson, my colleague, who is the head of our Center for Urologic Oncology and who I frequently say when I grow up, I want to be as smart as he is. Um, I'm going to start with the first hour with an overview of some trends and themes in prostate cancer and show you a few cases, and then Andrew has a a number of really interesting cases um, to show the interplay between MRI and genomics in uh, all stages of prostate cancer. So uh, disclosures for me, I've worked with lots of the genomic companies uh, in this space, but um, all of those uh, are inactive currently. ASCO has put together a guidelines panel for use of genomics in all stages of prostate cancer. And so as part of that, um, I have put my consulting um, on hold. We're going to be talking about a new marker for prostate cancer called ISOPSA, which is licensed to a company that is partly owned by the Cleveland Clinic. It's called Cleveland Diagnostics. And Cleveland Diagnostics has licensed the marketing of ISOPSA to genomic health. And so the clinic owns some equity position in that company, but neither Andrew nor I um, have any financial stake in the company. So those are the disclosures. So I'd like to start this course the last several years with this particular slide, because I grew up in the era where the idea was we had to screen and treat every prostate cancer, screen everybody and treat every prostate cancer that we found. And then in 2012, when the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommended against PSA screening, we entered what I consider to be the current era, which interestingly is coming to a close, I think, which is to don't screen or treat anyone. And really what I want to emphasize is we're in the precision medicine era where the goal is selective screening and therapy based on the age and health of the patient, the risk of having cancer, the biological potential of the tumor in those men who have cancer, and then patient and family desire. And we'll touch on all of these themes Um, I want to emphasize that I really believe that we are in the era of precision medicine for prostate cancer, and I'm going to show you examples from screening 
to early stage disease and surveillance to late stage disease on how this works. And I love this cartoon. It's 18 years old, but it's very prescient. This is a woman going to her pharmacist, handing the pharmacist a prescription that says, here's my sequence, which is not science fiction anymore. You can do this with 23andMe or Ancestry.com or any of those companies and get your sequence. We can't currently, outside of a specific disease state, know what to do with that information. But this technology is here and we need to learn about it and uh, embrace it and figure out how to use it for patient benefit. And the second thing I wanna point out is that we really want is to think about biology, not histology. It's my firm belief that the Gleason's grading system for prostate cancer has served us very well for many decades, but we have wrung out all the information that's in histology, all the information that a pathologist can see by white light microscopy, and it's time to understand and embrace our ability to measure the molecular biology of these tumors to recognize that that's what we should be making our treatment choices on. And again, we'll have lots of examples of that. So just some um, trends in what's happening with uh, prostate cancer in the United States. You all see the um, jump in PSA back in the early 90s, or rather the jump in incidence of prostate cancer when PSA first came along. And then we saw this immediate drop almost, and the idea, this was called the Cull effect, where we identified using PSA all the existing prostate cancer in the population by the use of PSA, and then the incidence went down, and it bubbled along until 2012 when the task force recommended against screening, and we saw a drop in rates of uh, newly diagnosed prostate cancer, and I'll show you some more data on that that's interesting. So for 2017, about 160,000 new cases. At its peak, it was around 240,000 new cases, about 10% of all new cancer cases. And you can see about, even in the PSA era, all through it, the number of men dying of prostate cancer has been around 25,000, uh, no matter what era you look at. And the good news is that our ability to diagnose and treat cancer has advanced so much that we can almost guarantee any newly diagnosed patient, even those who present with advanced stage disease, uh, almost 100% survival at five years. There are a few other aggressive cancers like that. So median age at diagnosis in the United States is 66, and men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer live for a long time. Median age of those who die of prostate cancer is age 80. That is a long window in which to be monitored, followed, treated, x-rayed, poked, prodded, biopsied, all of that. We have to recognize that there are more than three million men who are survivors now in the United States. And I think we need to give some thought to, better thought to survivorship issues with the, with the management of long-term problems like incontinence or rectal problems from radiation therapy and all the side effects of androgen deprivation therapy and that sort of thing. I think that's a burgeoning area that we'll hear about more in the next five years or so. There's still a marked disparity in the incidence and death rate due to prostate cancer between African-Americans and Caucasians. And I will show you some data that suggests to me that we are finally on the cusp of having the tools, rather we have the tools to put us on the cusp of understanding the biologic differences that drive this. We don't have the answer yet, but I will show you some real biologic data that shows differences between African Americans and Caucasians. And this is some nice data that one of our residents, Abhinav Khanna, presented at this meeting 
showing what the treatment trends are in prostate cancer using something called the National Cancer Database, which is mostly academic institutions across the United States. And you can see this is almost a million patients, and the use of radiation therapy has fallen. That's really remarkable, because you remember the controversy about 10 years ago when, radi when urologists bought radiation machines and there was this criticism of us that we were gonna overdo it. We didn't. Instead, we used this other machine, the robot, to start doing more prostatectomies. And active surveillance is on the rise. We don't have population-based data. There are certainly pockets in the US, some practices where 70 or 80% of men who are eligible go on surveillance. I think the average is probably closer to about 50% now, making progress there, though. And this is more detail on uh, surgery and radiation therapy, so you can see open prostatectomy um, hasn't gone away completely. There are a few dinosaurs like me around. And laparoscopic prostatectomy has uh, virtually disappeared, but it's mostly uh, robotic uh, prostatectomy. And on the radiation side, you can see it's mostly IMRT and, and, um, and uh, external beam radiation. But look where brachytherapy has gone. It used to account 15 years ago for about 10% of cases, and now it's about 1% or 2% of cases. And I want to show you some data from our institution that suggests that that's the wrong way to be going. Brachytherapy, in my opinion, is a great treatment for prostate cancer for the right patient. And I'm gonna show you some recent publications that suggest that. Andy and I are part of a team of physicians. There are five urologists, two radiation oncologists, and several physicists who have now done low-dose rate iodine-125 brachytherapy in almost 6,000 patients over the last 21, going on 22 years. So this was our a uh, big publication two years ago, three years ago now, looking at 2,000 men treated with LDR with a mean follow-up of seven years. And you can see in the first three rows of the table what the cancer-specific overall survival rate and biochemical failure rate is. And I would suggest to you that you would be hard-pressed to find another treatment out there, whether it's external beam radiation or radical prostatectomy, that's better than those numbers. Brachytherapy is a terrific treatment when it comes to cure. We also have had an interest in treating men with high-risk disease with brachytherapy, and we published this last year. And again, it shows um, prostate cancer-specific survival comparing prostatectomy, external beam radiation therapy, and brachytherapy. This is primarily high-risk disease, no external beam radiation, mostly without hormone therapy. And you can see that uh, brachytherapy actually has the best overall survival. Um, similar rates of metastasis and the rates of um, grade three or higher GU toxicity really are pretty similar. I mean, one of the disadvantages of brachytherapy is the short-term irritative symptoms they call and the risk of, uh, they cause and the risk of retention and so forth. But over the long term, it's really not that different than the other treatments. And then there was this multi-institutional study that we participated in in JAMA recently that showed that for men with Gleason's grade nine and 10 cancer, that adding brachytherapy to hormones and external beam radiation therapy actually resulted in the best outcomes in terms of prostate cancer-specific survival, metastasis-free survival, and even overall survival, a trend there. So I would like to suggest, even though we, we sit on the north coast of America and we have sort of a cute, skewed view of what happens sort of southeast and west of us, that brachytherapy still has a role to play. It's gotta be in the right hands. It takes a lot of experience doing the dosimetry, but when done well, it's a quite reasonable treatment. So let's talk about screening now. These are the new Preventive Service Task Force recommendations. In 2012, they recommended against screening 
in, uh, just published a couple weeks ago, they now say that uh, for men between age 55 and 69, you should discuss the pros and cons and individualize that and still no routine screening for men over 70. And they recognize two things, I think, data that we'll go over, which is the long-term survival advantage, uh, uh, prostate cancer survival advantage, not overall survival advantage, uh, in men screened in the European trial, the flaws in the PLCO trial, and they also commented on the fact that we have, as a community, reduced the harms of uh, screening for prostate cancer by putting more men on active surveillance. And I think as we develop new biomarkers, we'll further reduce the harms by reducing the number of biopsies that we do um, overall and therefore reducing the overdetection of non-lethal cancer. So Andy, let me ask you, was this a strong enough recommendation or should it be, should we actually screen? I mean, it's a substantial improvement from That's what the, uh, the Yes. Oh, can you turn your microphone on, please, so I can hear that? So the question I asked again was Dr. Stevenson's opinion about this recommendation, whether it went far enough. Yeah, I, I think that, that I, I think it's substantial progress uh, from where the, the, the task force was in 2012. Uh, and I think it, it, it's kind of consistent with the American Cancer Society and the AUA uh, and other national guidelines is, is that, you know, an appropriate discussion about pros and cons is, is, is I think, entirely reasonable. So I think this is certainly a step forward, and I, it's, it's how I would approach screening. The with pendulum is starting to swing back. Right. Good. So this is the European data. There has not been an update, to my knowledge, since 2014. This was the data at 13 years that showed a 27% reduction in the risk of dying of prostate cancer in men who were screened and a 35% reduction in the risk of palliative therapy for metastasis. And one of the things that has always bothered me is that the task force and the rest of the non-urologic community has not recognized that as a benefit. We all treat men with metastatic prostate cancer. We know how debilitating it is. Even if you respond to therapy, these are real um, advances and benefits to screening that should be included in the denominator. It's not only, in my view, about dying of prostate cancer. And you can see the number needed to screen and number needed to detect. This was the PLCO data, and we know now that this uh, trial was uh, flawed because there were almost as many men, or if not more, in the control arm who were actually screened. So Ruth Etzioni, who's a really terrific epidemiologist in Seattle, published this nice paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine recently where she tried to explain the different outcomes. And the problem with the PLCO is that the original data was an intent to screen. So if you were randomized to the control arm, you were, your, your death rate was linked to being in the control arm. Whereas if you were randomized to the PSA arm, your death rate was linked to the PSA arm. What she did was a different analysis. She compared those who were actually screened regardless of what arm they were randomized to to those who once weren't screened. So it was truly, although retrospective, screening, screened versus not screened. And what she concluded was that both trials provide evidence that screening reduces prostate cancer mortality. And in her estimate, when you compare men who are actually screened versus those who are unscreened, that the magnitude of the benefit in the PLCO is about the same. Andy, your thoughts about this study? Well, you know, to the clinical trial purist, um, and, and an, analyzing as intent to screen, you know, eliminates the, the issue of bias to some extent. Of course, what's not uh, factored into that is all the confounding effects of ad hoc PSA screening that went on uh, largely in the control arm. So um, I think, you know, the, the fact that these results are compatible with what 
the scene, not only the ERSPC, but in the Yotaberg trial, I think is very compelling evidence for the impact of screening. And in truth, uh, you know, the, the, the mortality rate from prostate cancer in this country reflects the fact that, you know, clinicians have embraced early, early diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer. So all this is really consistent with that. Agreed. And at EAU this year, um, I didn't see this presentation, but I heard about it afterwards. There was a, a sub-study in the European screening trial in Rotterdam, and they reported 19-year data. And it wasn't a huge number of patients, only 1,100, but look at that. It reduced death from prostate cancer and risk of metastasis by 50%. So I think the data is pretty compelling. Do you want to comment on this? Well, also? I just add that, that you know the other mature trial is, is the Yoderberg study, yes, and the hazard ratios sure. here are virtually identical. Yeah, so I, you know, the weight of the evidence suggests that there's benefit to screening. Now, the concern is that once we stopped screening six years ago, that there would be a greater incidence of advanced stage disease at diagnosis. And this paper was published to a lot of controversy two years ago because it showed a huge increase in the rate of metastatic disease. And the concern was the quality of the data in this database. However, at one of the poster sessions I moderated today, there was a nice multi-institutional study from nine big institutions led by Tom Arling at UC Irvine that shows similar data, a substantial increase in the rate of, of high grade and locally advanced and metastatic disease since 2012. And I have heard from a very reliable source that soon there'll be uh, additional data from a very robust um, kind of data monitoring um, uh, database that shows the same thing. And so I think the pendulum is about to go off the cliff and really swing back. And we need to do a better job screening so we don't go back to over-detecting low-grade cancer. But I think the, the screening um, push is going to be towards screening again in, very, in the near future. Just to add, yes, sure. know, this, is in, this is entirely predictable. Yes, uh, you know, agreed. You mentioned Ruth Etzioni earlier. She she had a very nice publication, I can't remember the journal, but essentially predicting that we're gonna revert back to the metastatic rate to the pre-PSA era within 10 years, and we're certainly getting close even within five years of the preventive services uh, initial. So that's good news for urologists because we're gonna stay in business, I think, uh, and maybe good news for men. And then there was this study from Britain, a randomized trial of a single PSA test versus no screening over the course of a number of years, and uh, it, it showed that if you had a PSA, you were more likely to be diagnosed with cancer, which makes sense, but it didn't affect overall mortality, and I'm surprised this didn't get more pickup than it did in the anti-screening group. So uh, what we've learned from this trial is just doing it once at age 50 isn't enough. We need to screen people repeatedly. So there were some issues with this, which I won't go into. All right, so next the question is, what can we do to improve our ability to screen patients so we don't overdiagnose non-lethal cancers and overtreat those. We really want to minimize the risk of overdiagnosis and overdetection. And there are a number of markers that are on the market. I guess PCA3 has faded. Anybody here still using PCA3? It's hard to find. But OPCO 4K and, and uh, PHI are on the market now. And when you use them, I think all the data is consistent is the net effect is we do fewer biopsies and you have a higher likelihood of a positive biopsy and a higher likelihood of finding high-grade cancer. That sounds like it's bad news for the patient, but it's actually what you want. You don't want to biopsy someone unless you're pretty certain that they're going to have high-grade disease. And based on a number of publications that have looked at all the available biomarkers that are on the market now to 
to that have improved sensitivity and specificity over PSA, maintaining a high level of sensitivity for high-grade cancer. In other words, you don't want to miss high-grade cancers. It reduces the rate of biopsies by somewhere between, I don't know, 25 and 35 percent. So with that, I'd like to tell you about a new marker that we have helped develop called ISO-PSA. It's not really a new marker, it's a new test. The problem with PSA is that while it's prostate-specific, it's not prostate cancer-specific, because PSA, the same molecule, is made both by cancer and by benign epithelial cells. And for a marker to be useful, it really needs to be both organ-specific and cancer-specific. And PSA just is not cancer-specific. It turns out, if you look at some very old data, this data is 20 years old, it comes from a group in Germany, that when you do, this is a Western blot, a protein blot, four different patients here just for illustration, these are PSA-related molecules, and you can see two things. You don't have to be a molecular biologist to understand this. You can see that within each patient, there are multiple isoforms, multiple different PSA molecules, and that no two, patient has, no two patients have the same pattern. And so how can you expect a test that only measures, for example, this band, total PSA, to be perfectly accurate, it's not. What's really interesting about this is that these isoforms are tightly related to cancer biology. And the reason is that the disordered metabolism that occurs in cancer cells results in molecular alterations of these PSA proteins that are more or less random by adding sugars and other things to them, and it changes their structure. And so that ties the measurement. If you could measure all of these, you would have a marker that's not only prostate-specific, but prostate cancer-specific because it measures the metabolism of the cancer cells. And that's what ISO-PSA does. So let me be clear, ISO-PSA is a test. It's an assay. It's not a new kind of PSA molecule. But it predicts cancer risk based on measuring the structure of these isoforms rather than the concentration of total PSA, which is pretty much what we do now. And so last year, we presented initial results from 261 patients using ISO-PSA, which is reported out as a K-value, a ratio, that showed that there's very little correlation between ISO-PSA result and serum-PSA results. So look at this. There are lots of men out here who have low PSAs that might be below the threshold for biopsy, but actually have a pretty significant risk of high-grade disease that would only be identified by ISO-PSA. And in a decision a uh, uh, analytic model, we showed that ISO-PSA was better than PSA alone or PSA and all the things in the risk calculator. Uh, and so we reported earlier this morning on a validation study, a separate set of 271 men using the same assay to determine if we could validate this marker. So this was the area under the curve, the predictive ability of ISO-PSA in the initial set to find grade seven disease with an area under the curve of 80.81. The validation study came out almost identical, 0.79, and so combined, and I'll show you some combined data, it came out as 0.80. So we have validated this marker. There are studies ongoing, but this looks very, very promising. It's unusual in a validation study to not see some drop-off in the performance of the marker that you're looking at. We did not see that here. So we think, we think this is very robust data. In purple here, you see how much better ISO-PSA is than PSA alone. So in the preliminary study in AUC, a 0.81 versus 0.68, and here you see the difference as well. It's highly sensitive. We set sensitivity at about 95%, which is what the standard total PSA assay is set at. And look at the negative predictive value. Okay? If you have a low ISO-PSA value, 
you're really very, very, very unlikely to have high-grade prostate cancer. We estimated with this data that 47% of biopsies could be avoided. And that's uh, a magnitude higher than that table that I showed you of available markers, which are around 25 or 35%. So more work needs to be done on this, but it looks pretty exciting. Now, we, uh, we have, I think, for the first time, data on the interaction between a serum-based marker and MRI-based biopsies. So in the validation study, about 40% of the biopsies were MR-guided. In the preliminary study, it was only around 8 or 10%. So here you can see the area under the curve for patients biopsied by transrectal ultrasound alone, 0.78. And here you see what it is for patients who had MR-guided biopsies. So there was better positive predictive value for patients who underwent an MR fusion biopsy. If you think about it, it makes sense. And it's almost necessary for this to occur for us to have confidence in the marker. Why is that? The marker predicts, ISO-PSA predicts for the presence of grade 7 disease or higher. MRI is better than truss-guided biopsy for finding grade 7 disease. So in order to have confidence in your marker, we would have predicted and hoped uh, that we would see just what we saw is that ISO-PSA performs better for MR-guided biopsies. And another way to look at the data is here, which is if you just take any cancer on biopsy, Gleason 6 or 7 or higher, you can see that ISO-PSA performed better in MR-guided biopsies. And look at this, an area under the curve of 0.86 in patients who had a high ISO-PSA-K and an MR fusion biopsy. When you combine that with a negative predictive value of over 90%, I think you've got a pretty robust marker. So this is, continues to be under development. Genomic Health has licensed the commercialization of this. They're working on trying to get this to be FDA approved so that they will sell kits to your local lab and it will be very easy to order this test. You will enter the order in your electronic medical record if you have one, and the patient will go to your lab and the results will get reported back into your electronic medical record and you can communicate that to the patient electronically. That's a far better flow than what happens with PHI or OPCO where you gotta fill out a form, send the patient to the lab before noon on Friday or it can't get sent out, it gets sent out, comes back a few days later with a piece of paper or an email and then you gotta call the patient and document in your EMR what's gonna happen, yes sir? Great question, and the answer is no, they do not. 5-alpha reductase inhibitors uh, affect benign epithelium, and we don't think they affect all these ISO-PSA forms. So I haven't shown you the multivariable data, but the results that we saw were independent of 5-alpha reductase use, age, uh, prostate volume, and race, and total PSA. So this should be, if it's continued to be validated, a very simple test, a blood test. You won't have to put the age of the patient, whether or not they've had a prior biopsy, any of that on the form. You just order it, and it'll be very useful. So, Andrew, your thoughts on this data? I know you haven't had a chance to digest it yet, but looks looks promising, huh? All right. So then the question becomes, what about the UK approach, where if you have a worrisome PSA, you get your MR the same day and biopsy the same day, and if your MR is negative, you don't get biopsied. And so there was this study published in the New England Journal recently that showed with that approach, MRI was about 12% better uh, on an absolute basis in finding high-grade prostate cancer. That was the randomized trial. And this validated very nicely that it's PIRADS 4 and 5 lesions that have the biologically significant cancers that we want to find there. So the UK has adopted this as the correct or the, the screening strategy du jour. 
I have some issues with this trial, but Andy, I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. What do you think? Is this the way to go? Well, I'll talk about it uh, in my slides coming up, but um, okay. I think there are very, very important limitations to this, which I'll touch on. I, I don't think this data is convincing to me that, that this is the way to go. All right, so we'll wait for your comments later. So I'm very fond of pointing out this study, which has not been embraced by many people who are really uh, enthusiastic about MRI. We are too, let me just say, we have six Uranav machines in our system and we use them all the time. I mean, it's great for making biopsy better, but not the be all and end all. So this was a nice study from Sloan Kettering with someone, Hetty Resack, the senior author who helped develop prostate MRI when she was here at UCSF. They took 150 men who had a pre-prostatectomy MRI, then a prostatectomy, uh, whole mount, uh, step section and whole mounted every prostate and asked a simple question, how often did the MRI done pre-op see what they saw in pathology? And what they found was if the tumor was big enough, it saw virtually all of them. But remarkably what they found is even for high-grade cancers, ones that you would not want to miss, that if they were small, 75% of Gleason's 3 plus 4, or excuse me, Gleason's 4 plus 3 cancers were missed by MR. And this is not subject to sampling error. This was proven at radical prostatectomy. And the conclusion of this study was that it's important to consider the limitability of MRI to detect small lesions. And I think that's correct. So I'm not here to say anything negative about MRI, but it ain't perfect. And we need to be smart about how we use it and recognize that just because you have a negative MR, whether it's in the screening setting or some other setting, it may not solve your problem, right? And you'll talk about this more. All right. There are also some other limitations of MRI. Peter Pinto at NIH has done pioneering work here and he published a nice study recently comparing the ability of someone who's really experienced reading MRI, a high reader, to someone who's less experienced, a moderate reader. And you can see for finding pyrads, any pyrads lesion, it doesn't matter how much experience you have. If you limit it to pyrads greater than or equal to three, pretty good, but look at this. If you really want to focus on those PIRADS 4 and 5, which that randomized trial suggested that we should, you really need a team that is experienced in reading MRI to get it right. All right? There's a big drop off here. And then if you um, look at similar data just for the index lesion, which would again be a PIRADS 4 or 5 or the largest lesion on there, again, experience matters. It's like everything else. And the point I'm trying to make here is that while MRI makes biopsy better, it's very operator dependent. You need the right radiologist to order to, to uh, gather the right sequences, to read them correctly, and then there is operator dependence, whatever system you're using in terms of registration of the images and hitting the targets and so forth. There is a learning curve there. So MRI, MRI is definitely in advance, but um, it's not perfect. And so I'd like to throw this out for discussion. Given the MRI data and the ISO-PSA data, it seems to me that the paradigm that we need and that we will have in the near future in terms of reducing the need, excuse me, reducing the number of unnecessary biopsies and, and reducing over-detection of low-grade cancer, now that we know that screening is beneficial, is that we start with a total serum PSA, and if that's worrisome for some reason, you do something like ISO-PSA. If the ISO-PSA is negative, its negative predictive value is so good that you don't need to do an MRI. But if ISO-PSA suggests a problem, then you do an MRI, and I'm going to suggest, 
this is just my suggestion, this hasn't been vetted yet, I'm going to ask you your opinion in a minute, that even if the MRI is negative, you still do a biopsy. Why is that? Because the positive predictive value of ISO-PSA is good enough that even if the MR doesn't see the high-grade cancer, and I just showed you data that shows they don't see all high-grade cancers, that you still need to do a biopsy if you're suspicious enough based on ISO-PSA-K. So, Andy, what do you think? Does this make sense to do this? Is this where we should be headed? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to talk about it in, in my slides. I'm, I'm not, again, I, I have some concerns about the precision study, and I'm not sure a negative MRI uh, can reliably use to, to exclude biopsies in patients who would otherwise be suitable for it. Yeah, otherwise that you have a high suspicion. Yep, all right, I agree. All right, there are some new imaging modalities out there. We've been working with a company called ExactView from Toronto um, based on what we saw at last year's AUA. They have developed what they call a micro-ultrasound, which is a 29 megahertz probe as opposed to the usual 8 or 9 megahertz probe that you have in the office with your Hitachi or B&K machine and so forth. And what you can see is this is the standard view and this is the micro-ultrasound view. You can see a great deal more internal architectural detail using a higher resolution probe. It looks, it's great for looking at the peripheral zone. At present, the software isn't terrific for looking at the transition zone, but it's great for looking at the peripheral zone and we have been developing an experience in Cleveland on using this. They have proposed and actually validated a system that's kind of parallel to PyRADS, it's called Primus, where you learn, and the idea here is for the urologist to keep the whole process in their hands and not have to rely on expert radiologists for, for MRI, but you keep the ultrasound in your own hands and you learn this system. Um, again, lesions that are not suspicious for cancer, one that might be, and two that are and you have to learn these patterns and look at them. And uh, we are trying to do this. This takes effort. This takes some effort to do this. We're not experts yet, but it, it looks like very interesting technology. And these are the sorts of things that you can see. These were provided by the company uh, where you can see mass effects here and you can see certain um, hypercoque areas and that sort of thing that are clearly different than what the normal tissue looks like and lead you, just like with a MRI, targeted biopsy, lead you to targeted biopsy here. And so here's a very interesting case report. In the process of developing this technology, the company asked, uh, I think it was one of their engineers who, had, who was uh, 50 and never had a PSA, to be a guinea pig and have a micro-ultrasound of his prostate done. And here's what it showed here. This is published, right? It showed multiple areas that were primus four and five lesions. And so they didn't have confidence just yet that they should biopsy those. So they did a PSA and they did an MRI which showed a PIRADS-3 lesion and its biopsy showed Gleason's 4 plus 3 disease and its prostatectomy showed multifocal 3 plus 3 and 3 plus 4 and 4 plus 3. So that's pretty dramatic. I'm not suggesting that this be used for screening, but I think it kind of validates the, the potential for the images. So I'm impressed so far that when we do systematic random biopsies, that we do a better job using this ultrasound machine than a standard truss ultrasound, in part because the image is more magnified and in part because you can actually see the needle tracks after you biopsied the patient. So uh, we're still working, and other groups are too, trying to figure out what role this should play. Should this replace transrectal ultrasound and biopsy? Should it somehow displace MRI? It might be cheaper to do that. Uh, might be easier for urologists who don't have access to good MRI, et cetera, et cetera. Andy, you've done lots of these. What's your impression of this technology? Yeah, I mean, I think 
Learning the Primus system, yeah. Yeah, microphone, turn the microphone on, please, yeah. You gotta learn you, the Primus system. When you can system. see, when you can, you're confident about the area of suspicion, you know, it's, it's the, more often than not, there's clinically important cancer there. Yeah. But developing the eye to, for some of these patterns takes time. So I show that just because we're a little bit excited about that, and there are always new things coming along here. So, all right, how many of you remember the prostate cancer prevention trial and the REDUCE trial? Right? These go back decades now, which is hard to say, and they looked at whether taking a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor would reduce your risk of getting prostate cancer and generated huge controversy and an FDA black box warning that these agents cause high-grade cancer and should not be used to prevent prostate cancer. Well, we have new long-term data that challenges that. So this is one study that was just published a few weeks ago that shows that taking finasteride for seven years provides a lifelong protective effect in reducing your risk of getting prostate cancer. It's pretty impressive, and you can see the relative risk reduction here is on the order of 20 to 25 percent. Really remarkable data. A second study, this is a population-based, non-randomized study of a huge number of patients. This was uh, in Canada someplace, I don't recall what city. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, this was from Stockholm. And um, they looked at the likelihood of getting prostate cancer in men who had been prescribed a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor for BPH for as short as two years. And what it showed was remarkable. It showed that taking two years of this drug re substantially reduces your risk of getting prostate cancer, substantially reduces your risk of getting low-grade prostate cancer, even reduces your risk of getting grade 7 cancer, and had no effect on high-grade cancer. Really remarkable data. And earlier at this meeting, Ian Thompson, who was the PI for the PCPT, presented data that's not published yet that shows that in the PCPT, men who took finasteride were at lower risk of dying of prostate cancer than men who took placebo. So one other concern about taking a drug long-term or what are the long-term adverse consequences? Again, the same group published this. No difference in these issues, um, less BPH symptoms and procedures as you'd expect, a little bit of increase in depression. But these are safe drugs to take over the long term, and I think it's time we need to tell the FDA that they need to retract their black box warning because there's absolutely no evidence that this histologic effect of more high-grade cancer uh, on biopsies during these studies causes anybody any harm. So prevention is not dead. And uh, I just throw that out there for your consideration. Thoughts on that? As, as primary prevention, um, I still think we have a long way to go in terms of cost effectiveness of this approach. But certainly, I, this data is very compelling that their use in, uh, in patients with BPH and potentially even in post-biopsy patients is safe. Safe to use, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. All right, let's talk about focal therapy, another good randomized trial that was published in Lancet Oncology using 2CAD, which is a porphyrin-like drug that sensitizes tumor cells to, to uh, light of a certain wavelength delivered by uh, laser. So these were 400 patients, multi-institutional trial with low-risk prostate cancer. You can see the entry criteria there who were randomized to either best practice or this focal therapy and followed for 24 months, and these are the results. So the end point here was what percentage of patients went on to definitive therapy because they met an individual practitioner's criterion 
for moving on to local therapy. So generally speaking, that's more grade six than on the initial biopsy or an upgrade from grade six to above. Very subjective as to what constitutes intervention, but this is what it showed. So your thoughts on this, Andy? Does this prove the value of focal therapy? Is this something we should really get excited about? I, I think it's a concept that's still worth uh, pursuing. Um, I think what's, this demonstrates that this specific ablative therapy appears to be safe and, and, and effective and potentially could use to, to retreat uh, for, for local failures. But obviously, the, you know, more work is going to be needed. Here. I think the main issue with this trial is there were lots of men on this trial who, who didn't need treatment at all and who could have avoided even the minor side effects that came with this. But I agree, it's interesting. And I think there's some biologic data to suggest that maybe, 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 maybe focal therapy uh, has a role. So this is data from Hopkins, Angelo DiMarzo. And what they did was map out the genomics of adjacent areas of prostate cancer and high-grade PIN. And what they found out is that not all high-grade PIN is really high-grade PIN. Some of it is invasive cancer that came from an adjacent duct and came this way along the duct and populated inside the acinus and hasn't broken through the basement membrane now. So it looks like PIN histologically, but molecularly it's cancer, which indicates something I said at the beginning, is that we now have the tools to understand the molecular uh, features of cancer despite what it looks like histologically. And what if, what if focal therapy could ablate this and prevent this from happening? Wouldn't that be interesting? Now, that's pure speculation on my part, but that's what resonated with me when I read this paper, that maybe there is a role for focal therapy. What we have to do is define what true benefit is with focal therapy. It's not just avoiding intervention in patients who didn't need intervention anyway, and it's not just taking patients who should be managed by surveillance and treating their anxiety with a treatment. I think there's a real question here whether there's a potential biologic effect that needs to be worked out. The FDA has formed a work, workshop a group, a working group, that's gonna meet this summer to try and hammer out some ideas about how to do clinical trials. All right, so let's do first case. I just have a few to, to show you. 65-year-old white man, PSA of 8.6. Would Is there anybody here who would not recommend a biopsy for this guy? He's healthy, right? Everybody want to biopsy this guy. And so he has an MRI first, and he has this tiny lesion right over here, four millimeters, pyrads four which was biopsied by cognitive fusion, and I don't remember what the details were there, why we didn't do actual fusion. So one of 14 cores, Gleason's eight, one millimeter, less than 5%. Really remarkable there. So how do you want to treat this guy? Anybody want to put him on surveillance? Probably not a good candidate. How do you want to treat him? The treatment of his choice, that's what we usually say, yes. Surgery or radiation, whatever, yes, okay. I guess, and so he did end up having a prostatectomy. Organ confined, no negative, was actually Gleason's four plus three. So I show you this case for two reasons. One is to show you MRI at its best. Such a small lesion, most of them are not seen. I showed you that data there, but in this instance, I don't think this man would have been diagnosed otherwise. It's very, very plausible that a random transrectal ultrasound biopsy could have missed this small lesion. Here's the question I have for Dr. Stevenson. Is this the right candidate for focal therapy? Someone who actually needs treatment and has only a solitary tumor. Yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, 
you know, he, he is a candidate for focal therapy. Um, you know, the problem is, is that there's, we've all probably seen a, dozens of cases in our practice that are MRR negative on the contralateral side, maybe even biopsy negative where there's clinically important cancer. So I, I think, you know, in terms of MR, you know, it, the technology is, the, the, the ceiling is extremely high for improvements here. Um, and, you know, that's the challenge for focal therapies. I'm not sure the technology is really to the point where we can reliably say, you know, you have a unilateral cancer, we're just going to treat, you know, that quadrant. Um, the other thing I would say about focal therapy is, you know, the only reason to do focal therapy, in my opinion, uh, is, is preservation of sexual function. And at least when you look at the data for HIFU and cryotherapy, you know, the, 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 whether it's whole gland or, or, or focal therapy, the results aren't terribly impressive in terms of sexual, you know, preservation of sexual function. So clearly there's, there's room for improvement there. Depends on, in part, where the lesion is. If you have a tumor that's close to the apex, it's hard to preserve neurovascular bundles because they come in the midline right under the urethra. And so if you have an apical lesion, it's hard to spare the contralateral side. But to me, this is the sort of patient we ought to be thinking about for focal therapy, right? Someone who really needs treatment and has a unifocal tumor. So we'll have to see if the FDA will agree with us there. All right, let's talk about my favorite topic, genomics. Two kinds of genomics to think about. One is germline genomics and the other is somatic genomics. Germline genomics is the DNA that you're born with and for all the traits you can get that you can blame your parents for. Um, they determine susceptibility to certain diseases. They may determine disease aggressiveness. Even for prostate cancer, I'll show you that. And they may predict response to therapy and I'll show you that as well. And then there's somatic or cancer cell DNA, which is in, in all our other cells. So all the genomic tests that are on the market, Decipher and Oncotype and Prolaris and so forth, are somatic DNA. And that's what's going, or, it's, or RNA, that's what's going on in the tumor that helps you manage that individual place. So let's talk about germline DNA. There are three known syndromes that increase your risk for prostate cancer, breast, breast cancer ovarian syndrome, BRCA-related tumors. Lynch syndrome, and, and a syndrome that doesn't really have any uh, phenotype associated with it. These are asymptomatic patients, but HOXB13. And we ought to start thinking about screening men for germline defects in these genes when we know they have a family history there. What's important about BRCA-related cancers is that they substantially increase risk, and BRCA-related BRCA2-related tumors have a genomic profile that's similar to metastatic cancers. So if you have BRCA, known BRCA families in your practice or a known BRCA carrier, there's no question that that patient should be screened. What we don't know is whether they should be screened more intensively than the, than the regular population, the general population, or whether they should get MRs or what tests they should get, but there isn't any argument that they should be screened. So that's important, particularly in younger men. If, you, if you're a BRCA carrier and you reach 65, your risk of getting prostate cancer goes down a little bit. And there is data now that shows that if you're born with a BRCA mutation, that you will get, and you get prostate cancer, that your cancer will behave more aggressively. So this is a nice study, I think this one is from Hopkins, showing that um, in patients who had BRCA mutations, 800 patients uh, total, a subset of them had BRCA mutations. In red here, you can see that they died more rapidly than patients who had similar grade stage in PSA but did not have BRCA mutations. And that was also true if they presented with localized disease, even though they had favorable risk characteristics clinically, they had worse tumors. And it was also true if you presented with metastatic disease at diagnosis. So having BRCA in your germline increases your risk of getting cancer, 
and gives you a more aggressive cancer. And it also has some treatment-related um, specificity that we'll talk about in a minute. And this is another nice study that shows um, that in men with germline BRCA mutations who get prostate cancer, that sometimes the response to enzalutamide and abiraterone is very short, measured, uh, this is in days here on the bottom here, so measured in a matter of weeks here. Many of these patients don't respond to standard androgen deprivation. So the message I'm trying to give you is having BRCA, being born with a BRCA mutation increases your risk for an aggressive cancer that increases your likelihood of death and does not respond well to standard therapy. And uh, yet another study that showed in men who have metastatic disease and have BRCA mutations in the tumor, that they respond better to a certain class of drugs called PARP inhibitors, which help reverse the DNA repair deficiency that comes with BRCA. So these are patients who had uh, BRCA um, mutations in their tumors, and they responded better. They lived longer, uh, both overall and uh, free of cancer with a PARP inhibitor. So looking at the DNA informs screening strategy, it informs prognosis, and in the near future, and even now, it informs treatment. Very important, think biology, not histology. That's the era that we're in now. Here's another interesting observation from our own group led by Nima Sharifi. Uh, this is the steroid metabolism pathway that you all learned in medical school and probably memorized for an exam sometime, and I'm not gonna go through the details except to tell you that this enzyme right here, 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase, is the gatekeeper for making DHT, which is what drives prostate cancer. It turns out that there are some of us, up to about 25 or 30 percent, who are born with a mutation in that gene that um, allows the cell to more rapidly um, form DHT and results in higher DHT concentration in the prostate, and that's bad if you have cancer. And so here's how that works. This is the enzyme, the gatekeeper enzyme. If you're normal, wild type, what happens is this enzyme um, binds to a protein and is degraded and doesn't do you any harm. But if you're mutant, the mutation prevents this gatekeeper enzyme from binding this protein and it turns you into a rapid uh, producer of DHT and you get lots of DHT down here in your prostate. And we know that DHT acts on androgen uh, receptor. And so the idea here is that you can use this test measured from spit or from white blood cells if you have metastatic prostate cancer to determine whether you get treated with Lupron or a drug like Lupron alone or whether you're gonna benefit from an androgen receptor blocker. And here's how it works. Just look at the top row here. This is the patient who has the wild type, no mutation. And if you look in the tumor, the androgen comes mostly from the testes, which is blocked by Lupron, and only a little bit through this gatekeeper enzyme. So if you ablate the testis source with an LHRH agonist or antagonist, most of the androgen in the tumor goes away and the tumor shrinks. Look at this though, if you're the homozygous variant, if you have two mutant alleles and you make lots and lots and lots and lots of DHT, turning off the gonadal source with Lupron alone does not deplete all the androgen in the tumor. And those are patients who need an androgen receptor blocker in addition. Again, the message is there's information in the DNA that we're born with 
that allows actionable clinical decision making, okay? Very important. All right, who should we refer for genetic screening, the known syndromes? And this, the bottom part, the second bullet point, isn't written in stone yet, but there was a consensus conference at Thomas Jefferson University uh, last year. And there's a growing consensus that we ought to be looking for germline mutations in men who present with a really strong positive family history, FDR as first degree relative or SDR as second degree relative, and men who present with really aggressive disease, Gleason's greater than seven, or who present with metastatic disease. And there are a number of tests on the market that allow us to do that now, and this is admittedly a very incomplete list. I don't know what the current list prices are here, but for a few hundred dollars, actually, you can order this test, you can get the kit from the company, you give it to the patient, and they send in a saliva sample, in a few weeks you get the result back, and a report, and generally they screen for somewhere between 15 and 20 cancer-related genes, and we will start developing now databases that inform who the right patients are to screen in the germline and to start making clinical recommendations. I would caution you, if you're going to do this, Germline genetic testing is more than just sending off a saliva sample, okay? You need to correctly identify who might be at risk. You need to counsel the patient on what to expect and why the genetic testing is important. A lot of people push back and say, well, if it's not going to help me, how is it going to help my family? Maybe my family doesn't want to know about this, et cetera, et cetera. And the big thing is post-test counseling, okay? We don't have, as urologists, the expertise to counsel patients. But there are services available now uh, for genetic counselors who will do web-based consults. So you don't necessarily have to be near an academic medical institution to get a genetic counselor to talk to your patient about things. So that's another exciting area. All right, what about somatic cell um, genomics? Um, there's a great study called the Cancer Genome Atlas that looked at several hundred primary prostate cancers and did all sorts of characterization of the DNA and RNA. And we can now state that there are seven molecular subclasses of prostate cancer defined by various molecular changes in the tumor. This goes above and beyond histology. This is our first window into the biology of prostate cancer. Four of them are characterized by gene fusions. You remember the gene fusion story that came out about 10 years ago, Temprosurg, that drives progression and so forth. And three are defined by mutations. And so these are starting to have clinical implications. So for example, SPOP mutated tumors, which account for about 10% of all prostate cancer, tend to present with higher PSAs than usuals, like in the 20s and 30s, but very favorable pathology. There's something about them that allows them to make more PSA that is a red herring with respect to the aggressiveness of the cancer. And I can see a time in the future, you do a biopsy, you send it off to have it characterized this way, see which family it's in, and then you decide, yeah, I've got a young guy whose biopsy shows grade seven disease and his PSA is 25, and you think that's a more aggressive tumor, but it isn't really, and so you simply do a prostatectomy on him and take care of him. That's coming. Another interesting observation here, and admittedly this is a little complicated, but I'll get to the point here. This was a group that looked at 10,000 tumors of various types and again characterized them molecularly in many different ways, and what they found was that all the kidney tumors, all the kidney cancers we can treat have a common genetic backbone and they come from the same family. And that was true for GYN cancers and for skin cancers also. But look at this, prostate cancer is unto itself. It's unlike other cancers. And um, the kind of work I showed you on the previous slide is gonna be critical for our understanding of that sort of thing. I mentioned earlier that we're on the threshold of understanding biologic differences 
between African-American men and Caucasian men that may drive this higher incidence and mortality in African-American men. And I won't go through the details here, except to say that there, here are five molecular characterizations of tumors from African-American men that show that they're different from Caucasians. And we are teasing this out as well. All right, a favorite topic. Andrew's gonna talk a lot about this, and I'm not gonna go into detail here, but if you think about MRI and genomics in trying to decide on who to manage by active surveillance, you have to think about the fact, in my view, that they're complementary and not competing tests because they answer different questions. MRI makes biopsy better. Genomics tells you something about the biology of the tumor. We talked about the fact that MRI is highly operator dependent. Genomics is completely objective. MRI, to get the right answer, usually requires a second biopsy. Genomics doesn't. Okay, anybody here ever had a prostate biopsy? Anybody here ask for a second prostate biopsy? Thank you, sir, may I have another? Anybody ever have a patient ask for another prostate biopsy? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just get the answer from the initial biopsy? I think that would be in advance, so. All right, um, again, uh, a study showing the, the complementarity of MRI and genomics this is a nice study presented here, just published recently from Rob Reiter's group at UCLA. They took 134 men who might potentially be candidates for surveillance who had an MR-guided biopsy and did oncotype scores on them. And what they found, just like the MRI study showed, they validated that PIRADS 4 and 5 lesions are more biologically aggressive. They have higher oncotype scores. And that's true even if you measure that on the lesion that was actually biopsied by MRI. Then they asked the question, which test in this setting, MRI, or genomics best predicted for the presence of high-grade disease or disease outside the prostate that would make that per person not a good candidate for surveillance? Which test best predicted for adverse pathology? And what they found is that if you've had an MRI-guided biopsy, that the best predictive value back here on the bottom is Gleason score and Oncotype score. It's not MRI. And it shows, and this was their conclusion, that this assay, in this particular instance, Oncotype, can be useful as an independent or adjunct technology to MRI to individualize risk stratification. Andy's got lots of cases to show you that will illustrate that, really important. All right, let's do a, a case. 65-year-old man um, has a biopsy that shows low volume Gleason 6 disease. Here you see it here, six of 12 cores. I'm sorry, not low volume, high volume Gleason 6, um, up to five millimeters. So he has NCCN low risk disease. So the question is, what confirmatory test do you want to do to make him eligible for surveillance? So who votes for MRI? Who votes for a genomic test? Interesting, okay. So he had the genomic test and he qualifies, low risk. So he comes back um, a little bit longer than he should have for his uh, six month evaluation. PSA went down a little bit and he, this time he has an MRI. So I've been doing that on the first reevaluation for patients. And he's got three targets, three lesions, and they're biopsied, and two of the three of them show Gleason 6 disease, um, up to 11 millimeters now. So now what? Andy, does this guy continue to qualify for surveillance, or is this progression since he has more Gleason 6 disease? Well, I, I think my, my philosophy is that, you know, patients like this, uh, who, who you cannot demonstrate pattern fours, um, particularly in the context of a low genomic score, I think are very suitable for surveillance. 
Um, recall that you know you can have large you know Gleason six tumors that that don't really harm patients at all. Right. It's really the pattern. It's about the biology, about. not the histology. Thank you for yeah. saying that. <laughs> Great. Audience vote. Okay. No criticism. We're not. There's no right answer here. No one's going to criticize you about what you vote for. How many of you think that this is progression and he needs treatment now, or are uncomfortable managing him on surveillance? Just a few. Okay. That's a that's significant change than two years ago. How many of you are comfortable keeping him on surveillance now? Most everybody. Okay. There's his Oncotype score. Hasn't changed any. All right. So he comes back a year later. His PSA is up a little bit. Has an MR again, and this time it only shows two targets. So this idea that MR can definitely tell us what's happening with the patient, they change. They're not going to be the same every year. And so he's rebiopsied, and he again has Gleason 6 disease. And so another Oncotype. And doing this, not because this is necessarily the best way to follow patients, but we're trying to build a database of data so that we can get some guidelines on how to follow these patients. All right, comes back a year later, PSA up now, PSA density borderline now for surveillance. If he were at Hopkins, he'd have been treated probably back here, but certainly now. Okay, his MRI is two targets, but now one of the pyrides lesions went from five to four. So what do you believe there? Biopsy again, Gleason 6, and I'll just show you the punchline here. So we have two and a half years of serial biologic monitoring that show that this man's tumor is treading water. I don't know with absolute certainty that he shouldn't be treated, but this kind of data is telling me that I think it's safe to uh, continue this patient on surveillance. All right, very briefly, I'm going to cut into Annie's time just for a couple of minutes because I want to talk about some other genomic things. There's another uh, company in the marketplace called Genome DX that makes Decipher. They do Decipher biopsy, which is like Oncotype for deciding on surveillance. They do Decipher post-prostatectomy, which tells you about the risk of recurrence, and there's suggestive, not validated data that it helps you pick patients who should get adjuvant radiotherapy. They're doing this really neat thing with every biopsy and prostatectomy that they, that they get, is they run not only the Decipher test, which is 22 genes, but they run something called the GRID, which is 1.4 million biologic readouts. And they built this tremendous database of more than 27,000 individual tumor profiles. And they are starting to mine this database. This is true big data to tell us about patterns of prostate cancer. And so one of the things they're developing is this report, which is for research purposes only, that can tell you what the likelihood of that individual tumor is will respond to androgen deprivation, respond to radiation, various systemic things, and uh, identify what molecular pathways might be targeted. And this is just one validated marker here um, that has been developed out of this, a predictor of response to postoperative radiotherapy. Think biology, not histology. This is the wave of the future. This will be part of what we're doing. I'm going to skip over this uh, for time here. I will say that um, there's also a commercial test on the market now for a, an androgen receptor variant called ARV7, which predicts for poor response to enzalutamide or abiraterone, but good response to taxane chemotherapy, and that's available on the market now. It's also marketed by Genomic Health, and you can help uh, do this blood test to decide in a patient who has metastatic castrate-resistant disease who's failed androgen deprivation, whether they go on abiraterone, enzalutamide, apalutamide, or whether they should get taxane chemotherapy. Again, all of this is coming. And I'm going to skip over this, and I'm going to turn things over to Andy. And any comments or questions before I sit down? Yes. 
Yes, and so I know that there are groups. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so the I don't know who you referred to, but there are um, high quality groups of thinkers about this who say that if you have high volume Gleason 6 disease that you're not a candidate for surveillance. And I think the genomic data that we have is um, challenging that notion. It's not about how much grade six cancer you have in the prostate. It's how much bad cancer you have in the prostate. And I didn't show you the publication that we had, but we published this last year. You can have very small amounts of grade six cancer that molecularly are bad and those are not good candidates for surveillance, and you can have large amounts of grade six cancer that are molecularly, that are benign. And so that's the theme here is think about biology, not histology. We're in the middle, the early stages of a paradigm shift. Yes? Yes. So it's a great question, which is really the question is how much confidence can you have in the readout of a genomic test of a tumor that's down here that's biopsied? Does it really reflect what's going on elsewhere in the prostate? The answer is not 100% of the time. And if you look at the data carefully, it's mostly tumors that arise in the same quadrant or the same lower half of the prostate where you can have confidence about that. But it is possible, and there are real examples of this, of tumors that are clonally distinct, two separate areas in the prostate. There's a lot of interesting biology about that. Here's the way I look at it. What that means is that the negative predictive value of a low genomic score isn't 100%, but the negative predictive value of a negative MRI is not 100%. So if you have a tumor in any circumstance and you have a worrisome genomic score, that you can bank on. That patient needs to be treated in my view. One more quick question and then we'll move on. Yes. Yeah. It it might. I think we. I think it's a great question. So the question was, could ISO PSA replace PSA as a screening test? The answer is it, it could. Um, you could take the data that we have now and make that argument. But I think we need more data because it it's been tested only in men who are scheduled for biopsy, and that's different than the general population of men who present for screening. So stay tuned. All right. Dr. Stevenson. Yeah, just to follow up on the to answer your concerns, you know, none of these tools is 100%. And so that's why, it, you know, these patients are go on active surveillance, right? So we're, we, we're not yet at the point where you can say, sir, you know, you have an unimportant cancer, go away, don't ever worry about it. But the tools that Dr. Klein was mentioning suggest that, you know, in this context, it's safe to defer therapy, but we continue to monitor you. And if there's evidence your cancer is changing, then we intervene. So that's one way I think about it. So just to, to if we can go back, pardon me. Um, so, you know, we, Dr. Klein made reference to the revised Preventive Services Task Force recommendations. And as I alluded to, I think this is far more intelligent uh, and uh, more unbiased, or more, yes, more unbiased way of looking at the, the data. There's, it's clear that there is a mortality reduction associated with the use of PSA as a screening test. And I would certainly recommend that, you know, if you're ever in the position where you're discussing PSA screening with patients or primary care physicians, that for those who are under uh, 70 years of age and, you know, a discussion of, of risks and, and, and benefits is appropriate. So uh, that's not to say we should all run out and start doing PSA testing on everybody. Um, I think the concerns of overdiagnosis and overtreatment remain. 
uh, I've outlined you know, some strategies that, that, that I've come up with to help address this issue. And first, of course, is the intelligent use of PSA. The uh, Preventive Services Task Force and the AUA guidelines help us a little bit. And they discourage PSA screening in men over 70 years of age. And I wouldn't just fix, it, fix just on age alone. You really have to consider life expectancy. Uh, and there's a lot of multivariable calculators online that you can use to estimate that for your patients. We want to find ways to improve the detection of important cancers and avoid unimportant cancers. We need to be able to accurate, accurately characterize their cancer's biologic potential to determine who needs treatment. Uh, reducing unnecessary biopsy is obviously an important uh, goal. And then likewise, I think we should really should embrace surveillance for low risk and select intermediate risk and even some high risk patients, the latter being those who have a life expectancy of less than, than, than 10 years. And I think biomarkers and MRI may significantly impact on many of these uh, strategies. So these is, this is a survey of all the biomarkers that we currently have available to us. Um, there's, uh, Dr. Klein mentioned um, uh, the germline mutations. Um, there's other uh, tests in this space that one can use to assess susceptibility. There's the Stockholm 3 model, which includes uh, some uh, uh, calocrine markers in addition to uh, some uh, SNPs. Um, there are biomarkers of disease risk, and we touched on the use of uh, uh, 4K score, PHI, uh, select MD and others. And then for patients who have a negative biopsy, one could use uh, PCA3 or confirm MDX. And then for patients who have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, there are prognostic markers such as Oncotype, Prolaris, and Decipher. But in addition to these biomarkers, there certainly is a role uh, for MRI in each of these clinical contexts. So we're all familiar with MRI. It's widely used in many different clinical settings in prostate cancer from diagnosis to advanced disease. Uh, we know that now uh, with the revised PIRAD scoring system, it's really about the diffusion-weighted contrast sequences, which really is important in the PIRAD scoring system. Cancer, as you know, has uh, restricted diffusion of water due to the hypercellularity, and this correlates rather um, uh, um, closely with the, the, the presence of high-grade cancer. And so uh, the, um, in, uh, the original authors of the PIRAD scoring system have issued their uh, version 2.0, if you will, uh, the, the, the major factor here is the uh, diffusion uh, coefficient um, on the uh, ADC map, and, and also the size of the lesion also does play a role in the PIRAD scoring system. And the dynamic contrast enhanced sequences are really only for the useful only for the indeterminate PIRAD three uh, lesions. And again, this is for peripheral zone uh, lesions uh, only. It's very hard, I think, in, in our experience at Cleveland Clinic to reliably identify tumors within the transition zone. The ADC uh, map doesn't have much role here because of all the heterogeneity of BPH. And so it's really based in large part on the appearance of the uh, lesion on the uh, um, uh, T2 weighted images. Um, Dr. Kleins talked about the Oncotype um, score. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Just understand that it, uh, it's a 17 gene assay uh, developed on prostatectomy specimens to predict for metastasis and death in surgically treated patients, and it's then now been validated in biopsy specimens to predict for the presence of primary pattern Gleason 4 or 5 or extraprostatic disease in men who undergo surgery, and it's also been validated in biospecimens among treated patients for metastasis and a prostate cancer death, uh, and it contains a, a selection of genes uh, involved in many biological processes we know to be important in prostate cancer, certainly AR signaling, cellular organization, stromal response elements, and proliferative markers. And the, the concern, of course, is that uh, 
doing a, a, a genomic test on a, on a focus of Gleason 6, is that really representative of, of uh, the, the, um, the underlying uh, um, molecular features of all the cancers within the gland? And certainly that's one advantage of the, the theoretical advantage of the Oncotype test is by design, uh, the investigators were trying to identify patterns that were common both within the pattern three and the pattern four lesions within, within the prostatectomy specimens to identify their molecular signature. And this has been shown in validation studies to uh, correlate very well uh, with the presence of uh, upgrading uh, or upstaging at the time of radical prostatectomy. I think the, the nice thing about this graph is if you look at the bottom graph, each dot represents an individual patient. You can see there's a broad range of genomic scores uh, among the very low, low risk and, and certainly the intermediate risk patients. Um, and it's certainly uh, for a patient who has a very low genomic score and a very high genomic score has a very, very different uh, probability of having adverse pathology. I think we should be, uh, it's illogical to counsel these patients um, about the risks of, active, of, of treatment and active surveillance in the same way. And this just in, uh, demonstrates that very nicely. So these are two low risk patients um, who walk the door seemingly appearing the same. They both have low risk features by D'Amico criteria, but yet have very, very different uh, GPS scores. The patient on the right has a low GPS score. His risk of adverse path is consistent with a very low risk cancer, whereas the patient on the right has a very high GPS score. He's an outlier. His risk of adverse pathology is really more consistent with an intermediate risk patient. And uh, probably the patient on the, on the left, most of us would be inclined to recommend observation, I would imagine, whereas the patient on the left clearly may benefit from immediate treatment. Uh, Prolaris is another tissue-based marker in this space. It was developed on a watchful waiting cohort uh, diagnosed in the pre-PSA era in the UK uh, who did not receive any uh, curative therapy. Um, it combines uh, 31 different genes. They're all cell cycle uh, progression markers, and it's been demonstrated to predict uh, for uh, mortality in a watchful waiting population. Uh, this is the, uh, the modeling cohort. As you can see, it was about 350 patients in the UK. You can see the CCV score or the cell cycle progression score correlates well with mortality for patients who don't receive curative therapy. Uh, but importantly though, um, it, the, the, the flexion point appears to be a CCP score of greater than two is really the, 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 the way that you can distinguish them and outcomes in these patients. The problem is that the, the, the modeling cohort in the UK does not really resemble patients that we would be seeing um, who are candidates for active surveillance in this country. And, and very, very few patients who are candidates for active surveillance actually have a CCP score of greater than two. Um, nevertheless, uh, in validation studies done on North American patients, the, um, the uh, CCP score does add additional prognostic information to CAPRA. And as you can see here among the Gleason uh, sixes, uh, sevens, and eight through tens, um, the CCP score does correlate very well when combined with CAPRA for prostate mortality. Can I comment uh, on that sure. last slide for yeah, a minute, please? If you look carefully, this is the, I think, a limitation of Prolaris in particular. If you look at the blue bars there, if I'm getting this right. The Gleason 6s are the blues. Yeah. Prolaris doesn't do a very good job of distinguishing biologic potential in Gleason 6 cancers. It's really validated just on the higher grade cancers, the yellow and the green and the red and so forth. So one of the frustrations of using Prolaris is that you have a patient with very low or low risk disease, and let's say you have 10 or 15 of them, the risk of death is gonna come back at two or 3% for all of them, and it doesn't distinguish between them. And there was a study at the AUA press program on Friday that compared Prolaris and Oncotype and Decipher in 22 patients. They did all three in 22 patients. And the conclusion from the study was that Prolaris was the one 
that put the most patients on surveillance. But I believe at the low end, and I, I, I don't have anything negative really to say about Polaris, this is about the science, at the low end in, in Gleason 6 cancers that it just doesn't do as good a job of distinguishing biology as the other tests do. So thank you for letting me interject there. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair statement. Um, uh, Dr. Klein talked about Decipher. I, um, um, I won't uh, re repeat uh, what he said about it already. We, we did do a small uh, pilot study uh, at our institution showing that in biopsy specimens in a very small number of patients that the Decipher store score can uh, also predict for uh, the presence of adverse pathology among men with biopsy Gleason 6. And uh, Daniel Spratt and colleagues in a multi-institutional study showed that the, uh, a clinical risk predictor that also included Decipher uh, not only reclassified patients, uh, but also was a um, much a better uh, a model for predicting distant metastasis over CAPRA and over NCCN. Uh, I got to do a little bit of plug uh, for my nomograms and that uh, despite the fact that they've shown a fairly decent uh, concordance index for metastasis, we have our nomogram from uh, over a decade ago that, that still appears to be as good, if not better. Um, I think there's a lot of interest on looking at subtypes of Gleason pattern four. Um, I'm not sure what Dr. Klein thinks about the modifications to the Gleason scoring system. It certainly made it a little bit more understandable for patients. Uh, I have my concerns about it because I think we're in an era where we need far more granularity, not less, when making decisions about treatment for patients. And there's very nice work by several pathologists, um, both in North America and abroad, really understanding that there are different subtypes of Gleason pattern four, and I've just listed them here. They can, uh, when a pathologist reports a Gleason pattern four, he or she may be referring to the presence of poorly formed glands, fused glands, glomerular glands, or cripiform glands. And the question is, do they all have the same prognostic significance? And there's very nice data to, to suggest that, in fact, they don't. And this is an analysis by Theo Vanderquist and colleagues um, on the Rotterdam uh, patients in the ERSPC who received radical prostatectomy. And, he, and they looked at whether both intraductal carcinoma or cribriform carcinoma was present in the biopsy specimens. And these are all patients who had surgery and long-term follow-up for we can determine what's the discriminating value of, of either intraductal carcinoma or cribriform. And you can see it, it, it discriminates very well uh, for both patients with three plus fours, four plus threes, Gleason eights, and even Gleason eight, nines, and tens, um, that the, 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 the cribriform pattern and the intraductal carcinoma appears to be what's really driving the clinical phenotype of this disease. And so, you know, my take from this data is that the absence of cribriform and introductal carcinoma in patients with 3 plus 4 really appear to have a similar prognosis to Gleason 3 plus 3. And I think it's very suitable to consider these kinds of patients for active surveillance. And uh, this is work that Dr. Klein did uh, on the original GPS study that shows that genomics really can help us understand uh, intermediate risk prostate cancer better. So these are all patients who had intermediate risk disease who were treated with radical prostatectomy at the Cleveland Clinic for whom we have you know, 10 to 20 year follow-up. And you can see that overall, um, the risk of METs or death at 12 years in this cohort was about 12%. Uh, but importantly, about 50% of patients had a, a, a low to intermediate risk um, GPS score. And the risk of METs or death at 12 years was 6% or less. But importantly, half of the intermediate risk patients had a high GPS score. And their risk of METs or death at 12 years was almost 20% which is really what you would imagine uh, to be the case for a Gleason 8 or 9 cancer. So it does tell you that genomics is telling us important information uh, about the prognosis of these patients because it's really telling us about the underlying biology. Data from our institution, um, as Dr. Klein was referring to earlier in his talk, 
has shown that genomics uh, is independent of tumor volume, at least by biopsy criteria. So these are patients who are very low and low-risk cancers, and we can see there's a broad range of GPS scores that really doesn't correlate at all with either the percentage of positive cores, the presence of uh, tumor involvement more than 50%, or the millimeters of cancer, or, or even the, the, um, the PSA density. And this is one area, perhaps, where size doesn't matter, that really what's more important is the presence of you know, high-grade components of cancer, and potentially even more important is the presence of specific subtypes of Gleason pattern 4. Um, data by Jesse McKinney, uh, looking at, at patients who underwent a genomic score and biopsy specimens, show that the cribriform pattern 4 and what's defined as a high-risk canary pattern on biopsy are very closely associated with, with higher GPS scores. So this is really preliminary data. It's yet to be published, but I think certainly it suggests, indeed, that the GPS score is giving us a very, very uh, robust indicator of, of underlying biology. So with all this emphasis on cribriform, um, there's very nice work from investigators from the University of Rochester suggesting that the cribriform pattern in, in, are invisible on MRI relative to other Gleason pattern, uh, other pattern fours. So um, they found that a visible pattern four lesion on MRI was associated, of course, as you would imagine, with increasing size of the lesion, and also with the presence of the non-cribriform pattern four uh, uh, subtypes. 83% uh, of the non-cribriform or mixed pattern foreign lesions were visible on MRI, but only 17% of the pure cribriform lesions were visible on MRI, and only a, roughly a third of those that were more than 0.5 cc's. So this to me is concerning. I mean, I think those of us who use a lot of MRI in our practice um, yeah, anecdotally have seen important uh, limitations with cases that have high-grade cancers and yet occur in the setting of a negative MRI and this invisibility of cribriform pattern may be one of those contributing factors. When they looked at the sensitivity of various uh, diagnostic methods for detecting cribriform, uh, you can see that MR-guided biopsy, only did the, the sensitivity was only 21%, uh, which was actually inferior to doing a standard biopsy, and then an MR-guided biopsy plus a standard biopsy was 37%. So this gives one pause when people advocate for deferring biopsy or using MRI as a screening test for prostate cancer. And I'll talk about a little bit more of that in, in when I talk about um, the, the, uh, the precision trial. So moving on, let's talk about how uh, MRI and biomarkers can be used to improve the detection of important cancers and avoid unimportant cancers. And so the, the, the key thing here is yes, we are finding a lot of unimportant cancers. This is the data. Uh, from the PCPT trial, uh, suggesting that when one analyzes four-cause biopsies, that 70% of those that we're diagnosing uh, represent biopsy Gleason scores of six or less, and it's questionable whether we should endeavor to try and find these low-grade cancers, particularly in, in men who are older with a, a shorter life expectancy. And then from the reduced trial, we see that, yes, we are missing important cancers with our current diagnostic paradigm looking at extended biopsies. In the rebiopsy population, the cancer detection rate is down the order of, of, of 50 to 60 percent, uh, sorry, 25 to 50 percent, excuse me. Uh, and, and indeed, most of these are uh, low-grade cancers, but you can see uh, um, a fair number of these patients can have Gleason 3 plus 4s. A much smaller proportion will have a Gleason 8 or 9 lesion. So there was a nice uh, study um, um, out of Australia. It was a prospective study of 23 biopsy-naive patients who were referred to a single center for an elevated PSA. These patients are very representative of the typical patient you would see in your practice, 
They all, all underwent a pre-biopsy, three Tesla, uh, multi-parametric MR, and then they underwent a cognitive fusion biopsy if there was a PIRADS uh, three to five lesion. And then a, a blinded urologist then would perform a, a 12 core systematic biopsy. And what it showed uh, was that MR-guided biopsy um, uh, avoided, uh, an MR-guided approach avoided uh, biopsies in almost a third of patients. Um, there did not appear to be any decrease in the detection of clinically important cancers, but importantly, a much uh, uh, decreased uh, detection of, of Gleason 6 or fewer cancers. Um, and the, the impressive thing about the study is that uh, using an MR-guided approach, over half of biopsies would be avoided, and there was an impressive 97% negative predictive value for intermediate and high-risk cancers and an 89% reduction in the detection of low-risk cancers. A PROMISE study, as you can see, was published last year. So these are patients who were referred for biopsy. They all went, went a, a pre-biopsy MRI, uh, followed by a template-guided um, biopsy, followed by a transrectal uh, biopsy. Uh, and the primary endpoint uh, was the detection of clinically significant cancers. Uh, the bottom line here is this validated the, uh, the uh, uh, PIRAD scoring system for the detection of clinically significant cancers. I just referred to the figure on the far left that overall there were 213 um, uh, clinically significant cancers, the vast majority of whom uh, were PIRADS uh, four or five, um, and uh, there were uh, much, much fewer MR-negative uh, clinically important cancers, and most of these were, were PIRADS one or two. So an MR-targeted biopsy of PIRADS three to five lesions would reduce the biopsy rate by 27% and reduce the detection of insignificant cancers by 5%. Um, the uh, NCI certainly has been leaders uh, in this space. Um, uh, I've always been impressed by this publication in the Journal of Urology, which shows in, when trying to use MR and the benefits of MR for the detection of, of clinically important cancers and characterizing cancers better, um, uh, there was no difference in the MR-guided biopsy lesions versus the systematic biopsy in terms of cancer detection across the range of PSAs. But in terms of upgrading, it really appears to be useful only in those who have PSAs of four or greater. Uh, and so again, when we talk about the utility of MRI, I think it probably has most utility in those men who have higher PSAs, and presumably because they have a large lesion that may, um, in an anterior location, that may avoid detection uh, by a, a transrectal approach. This is the precision study. So it was a multi-center study of 500 biopsy naive men who had elevated PSA um, uh, enrolled across 25 centers. Uh, the endpoint was a non-inferiority for the detection of clinically significant cancers. You can see with the MR-guided biopsy approach alone, um, uh, biopsy would be avoided in 28% of men, and statistically significantly more uh, clinically significant cancers were identified with the MR-guided approach, and fewer clinically insignificant cancers were identified if one just did targeted biopsies of suspicious lesions alone. I think this study has important limitations, and these are my thoughts. First off, the study population was rather old. Half the patients were over 65 years of age. And one could question whether an aggressive diagnostic approach should, should be done in these patients to begin with. And they also had fairly high PSA levels, 75% of whom had PSA levels of greater than five. And remember back to the NCI study that I just showed you, the value of MRI appears to be most apparent for those with high PSAs. Um, remember, uh, as Dr. Klein showed in his studies, expert radiology is really necessary uh, to, uh, for the accuracy of MRI. Uh, the radiologists in the study, they read a median of 300 MRIs per year. Uh, you know, we've done well over 2,000 MR-guided biopsies at Cleveland Clinic, 
and we have about three MR radiologists that are reading all of our studies. So very large center like ours, and yet only a very small number of radiologists are looking at our, our films. Importantly, there was no difference in the cancers detected in this study. There was no difference in the detection of clinically important cancers in this study, which I define as Gleason pattern four or three. And so with this, and there was no difference in the amount of cancer that was detected. And so my interpretation of this is that the MR-guided biopsy is better able to see the lesions so you can, your, your needle can go right through the heart of that lesion and you're better able to pick up the small foci of Gleason pattern four uh, that may be present. And in my opinion, I don't think this is, is practice changing yet. Um, so in summary, uh, for the use of, uh, of MR-guided biopsy, um, I think it does appear to be better than standard biopsy for the detection of Gleason 3 plus 4 cancers. It does miss fewer high-grade cancers and misses um, um, more low-grade cancers compared to standard biopsy. It does require expertise in radiology and fusion biopsy. And I think the greatest value is those men who have higher PSAs. And the added value of, of, stand, of standard biopsy to MR-guided biopsy may be low. And I think if one's just to do an MR-guided biopsy alone, I think you really have to consider the clinical context and the cost of missing uh, a potentially high-grade cancer. Uh, it's also important to understand that um, in many areas of the prostate, particularly the transition zone, may be very hard to see um, cancers because of all the heterogeneity of BPH. Uh, now we're on to point number three, use of biomarkers and MR to characterize cancer's biologic potential. An MRI is not a very useful tool for pathological staging purposes, certainly for extraprostatic extension. The specificity and sensitivity of MR is very, very low, so I would not make treatment decisions um, about nerve sparing, uh, about you know, uh, uh, intensifying therapy based on the appearance of MRI. It appears to be a little bit better uh, for seminal vesicle invasion in terms of specificity, uh, but in general, I don't think MRI is a useful staging tool. Um, it, it does appear to be fairly good uh, for characterizing the true Gleason score within the cancer. Um, uh, this is a study of, of patients undergoing MRI or prior to prodigal prostatectomy. Uh, MR detected the index lesion in all cases, um, but importantly, the highest Gleason score was under, underestimated in about a quarter of patients. Uh, this is another study from UCLA uh, showing that the, the value of MRI appears to be greatest as the, as the size of the tumor increases as the Gleason score of the tumor increases. Um, but importantly, there are small high-grade cancers that, are, that can uh, be very hard to detect by MRI. Um, in terms of characterizing tumors accurately, is MR-guided biopsy enough? I think there's ample data to suggest that MR-guided biopsy alone is inferior to the combi combi combination of MR-guided biopsy and standard biopsy. Um, this approach uh, has a, 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 an accuracy of 96%. And so for patients who you think are, are you're, you're trying to evaluate them, whether they are suitable for treatment or active surveillance, I think the combination of MR-guided biopsy and standard biopsy still remains, remains best practice. So for uh, characterizing cancers, MRI performs poorly for pathological staging. MR-guided biopsy alone underestimates tumor grade in up to a third of cases, and small high-grade cancers may be missed, as Dr. Klein mentioned, up to 75% of cases and again, based on the study from uh, University of Rochester, cribriform pattern may be missed in almost two-thirds of cases, even when those tumors are more than 0.5 cc's. And I think an MR-guided biopsy plus standard biopsy really is best for accurately uh, characterizing cancers before treatment. Uh, can MRI be used to reduce unnecessary biopsy? 
And this is the idea is, is what is the predictive value of a negative MRI? Uh, importantly, cancer in, in these negative MR lesions can be identified in up to a third of cases, some of which may be clinically significant. The negative predictive value for MRI for clinically significant cancer has a very uh, wide uh, range in terms of what's been reported in literature between 63 and 90 percent. I think at Cleveland Clinic our rate is hovers somewhere around 82 to 85 percent and so you have the potential for missed, missing significant cancers if patients undergo MR guided biopsy without standard biopsy. Uh, this is probably the largest study to date that's analyzed this. This is from uh, Italy uh, of roughly 5,000 patients who underwent MRI prior to biopsy. A third of them, or, or over 1,500, had a negative MRI, uh, of whom roughly half were biopsy naive. These patients were then followed for a median of 38 months. You can see the median age of these patients is about 66 years of age, uh, and the median PSA was, was uh, six. Um, importantly, uh, when these patients underwent further biopsies, uh, cancer was detected in about 14%, and clinically significant cancers were detected in 5%. Um, I think what this shows you when you reflect back to the reduced trial, it shows that uh, a negative MRI in the rebiopsy setting, uh, uh, the cancer detection rate is about half what you saw in the reduced trial, but the detection of clinically significant cancers is unchanged. So let's go on to a case. So this is a healthy 57-year-old male. You can see he's had a, a rise in his PSA over the last several years. His father was diagnosed with prostate cancer at age 64. He's, he has a normal prostate exam, and he's uh, minimal lower urinary tract symptoms, and he's cotton and potent. And when one um, using a multivariable calculator like the PCPTA calculator, using a PSA alone, his risk of cancer is 30%. His risk of clinically important cancer is 7%. And when one adds the free to total, you can see the risk of clinically significant cancer um, roughly doubles. So Dr. Klein, uh, you know, what is the suitable, I don't know if you use the PCP calculator or others in your practice, but, you know, um, you know what are, the, what are the, 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 the risks that you use to advise patients about biopsy? The risks of doing the biopsy, per se? Well, at what point do you think a biopsy should oh. be recommended, I guess? Yeah, that's so um, depends on the clinical context, the age of the patient, their life expectancy, comorbidities, the... Difficulty of doing a biopsy, we see lots of patients who are on chronic anticoagulation for various things. We see patients who have no rectums for various reasons. That All of those things go in there. But for the average patient, the average risk on PCPT is about 7%. And so if they're at 7% or lower, I generally I'll give them the option. If they're above 7%, I would recommend the biopsy. So how would you recommend this patient proceed? This, I would recommend a biopsy okay. on this patient. Would everyone agree in the audience he needs a biopsy? So the patient was reluctant to undergo a biopsy. He wanted a 4K score and an MRI, and his prostate MRI was, was pristine. Okay, you can see he had a rather large gland. Um, his PSA density was low, uh, but yet his 4K score was fairly high, so it was 28%. Again, the 4K score is giving you the probability of having clinically important prostate cancer. Um, so based on that, I recommend that he still undergo a biopsy despite the negative MR. You can see at the left base, he had a, you know, two of two cores positive. It was about eight millimeters of cancer. And importantly, 10% um, of that uh, represented cribriform pattern. The patient underwent radical prostatectomy and found to have very clinically important cancer, uh, pathological T3A with established ECE. It was Gleason 3 plus 4. The tumor volume there was substantial, so it was four cc's 
and he had negative lymph nodes. So, you know, it's these type of cases that one gives one pause when people advocate for MRI as a screening test. Again, I don't think we're yet at the point where we can reliably say that on the basis of a negative MRI with a patient who's otherwise candidate for biopsy, sorry, in the biopsy naive setting, that, uh, that we should forego biopsy. The data that, that, again, from University of Rochester concerns me, if, if cribriform truly is invisible on MRI, it's a major limitation to, to the use of MRI as a screening test. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Clinton? Yeah, I, yeah, I think you've made a great point there, and, and clearly cribriform glands are bad. We know that the uh, molecular changes in them are bad. And all I would say is that our experience talking to pathology colleagues is that lots of non-expert pathologists overlook cribriform glands when they're present. And I think that's an argument for genomics because genomics is objective and don't uh, rely on the expertise of the pathologist. I mean, certainly, you know, cribriform, the, 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 the specificity for cribriform in biopsy and for the presence of cribriform in prostatectomy specimens is extremely high. The sensitivity is, is not very good. So the absence of cribriform on biopsy does not mean that this is necessarily a patient who, um, you know, should right. forego treatment. Uh, and again, I think there, there's a role for genomics in that situation. So can biopsy be avoided based on MRR? Um, I think an MRR, negative MRR is associated with a low probability of clinically significant prostate cancer. There's rather little data on biopsy-naive patients. Again, consider the clinical context and the consequences of a missed cancer. Um, there's a nice study that showed uh, where MR has difficulty um, identifying cancers. Uh, at least in that study, it said it was in the apical region or the dorsal lateral regions, I think also in the transition zone. It's very, very challenging at times to identify uh, whether cancer is present or not. And there's a challenge in reliably identifying uh, transition zone cancers on biopsy as well. So lastly, surveillance for low-risk patients uh, and select intermediate and high-risk patients, how MR and, uh, and genomics can help us. Uh, this is data presented at this meeting um, by Aaron Katz looking at how the GPS score results in a reclassification of patients. And certainly, I think what it demonstrates is that the likelihood of, of important reclassification in very low-risk patients is very, very, very low. Um, in this case, only 1% of the patients were reclassified to an intermediate risk probability of adverse pathology, and even only 8% of patients were reclassified to a, a low risk of adverse pathology. So the value of any adjunctive tests in these very low risk patients is, is, um, is questionable. Um, but even in the low risk patients, um, only 15% would be reclassified to an intermediate risk cancers. Uh, and, and importantly, even in the intermediate risk cancers, uh, you know, about 12% of them would be reclassified as having a low-risk cancer. Um, so when one analyzes the utility of MR in the active surveillance population, understand that the performance characteristics of MR-guided biopsy in the diagnostic setting may not be applicable to patients on surveillance. Why? These are very low and low-risk patients. They all have low PSAs typically. Again, refer back to the NCI data about the utility of MRI is really only evident for patients who have PSA levels of five or greater. Um, all these patients have low volume Gleason 3 plus 3s, and they also uh, tend to be older. Um, when they looked at the reclassification using MR-guided biopsies, it occurs in about 22 to 36% of patients overall. And you can see the risks of upgrading uh, in low, intermediate, moderate, and high suspicion lesions. There's substantial overlap here. Um, and in importantly, understand that this is very, very similar to the rates of reclassification in patients who undergo a confirmatory biopsy without MRI. Um, 
So there does not appear to be an increased reclassification rate among surveillance patients um, uh, using an MR-guided biopsy and standard biopsy, um, and also understand that there are clinically significant cancers that can occur outside of MR visible lesions. Um, this was a study that looked at um, whether patients can be followed with MRI without biopsy. So there are 58 low-risk patients on active surveillance after a confirmatory MR-guided biopsy, of which almost a third of them were upgraded. Uh, they define MRI progression by an increase in the size of the lesion, increase in the PIRAD scoring system or the development of new lesions. And so in the face of a stable MRI, which occurred in 71% uh, of patients, there still was a 20% reclassification rate. And in patients who had progression in MRI, certainly there was a very high reclassification rate. Uh, but it does show you that the negative predictive value for MRI in terms of reclassification or progression on surveillance is unfortunately unacceptably low. So I think that this tells me that we still need to be doing surveillance biopsies in patients who, who even have stable lesions on MRI. So in summary, I think it does have the potential for improved cancer characteristic diagnosis, uh, but I think there's insufficient data currently to support the use of MRI alone in the surveillance of patients with low-risk prostate cancer. And to touch upon a point that Dr. Klein mentioned before, um, we as urologists have many tools available to us uh, in the uh, active surveillance setting, we have both genomics and MRI. Are these competing or complementary? And really, MRI is telling us about anatomy, uh, but I certainly think that, that uh, genomics is telling about us about the underlying biology. Um, and here's a, a, a way to understand why these are, are complementary. We know that there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity, heterogeneity within tumors. Uh, there are early uh, truncal mutations that exist among all cancers that may develop within the gland, and then as a result of random mutations or selection pressures, these late driver mutations are driving the clinical phenotype of the disease. So I would think of genomics as a way as kind of capturing the underlying fundamental biology of all the cancers that are arising within the gland. And what MR-guided biopsy is really allowing you to accurately identify the index lesion so you can sample it and get a better sense of the, of the, tumor, of the true Gleason score and essentially characterizing the index tumor better. Now, this is data from UCSF looking at um, uh, the genomic scores across different PIRADs, lesions on MRI, and whether the patient has a biopsy Gleason 6 or a Gleason 7, there's an enormous amount of scatter uh, and, and a rather poor correlation between the MR lesions and the genomic score of each of those MR lesions. The bottom graph shows the correlation to be very, very poor, which was not statistically significant. And again, this is one of the the problems, I think, with MRI is that uh, uh, this shows you that, uh, you know, the, the appearance of the lesions does not necessarily mean that clinically significant cancer is present. Likewise, the absence of concerning features on MRI does not necessarily tell us that uh, there's no risk of having clinically important cancer. And just to highlight the, the study that Dr. Klein mentioned from UCLA, um, this is Rob Ryder's group looking at patients who all underwent an MRI-guided biopsy all underwent a genomic profile on the biopsy specimens, and then underwent radical prostatectomy. Um, a limitation of the study is that most of these patients were intermediate risk, but when you look at what the most significant predictors of upgrading or upstaging at surgery, it really was the GPS score, and the PIRAD scoring system really offered no discriminating value at all. So this is what I say about MRI. It's only as valuable as the tissue it allows you to obtain. And I always describe MRI as, as a, it's like a low-powered microscope that's out of focus, uh, and how much reliance would you have on that 
when making treatment decisions. It's really only the tissue that it allows you to sample, and that's where the value of MRI comes into play. Okay, so this is a case of mine. Um, so full disclosure, um, you know, I was very much a tissue-based guy, uh, certainly in the MRI camp about six years ago, and this is relevant for this case. So this is a 70-year-old healthy male. You can see he had an elevated PSA for several years. Um, he's had four prior negative biopsies. His PSA has been rising very slowly over many, many years on a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. He has a negative prostate exam. He's continent. He's potent. An MRI just shows a very small 2-millimeter lesion that was a PIRADS-4, uh, and a targeted biopsy was performed, which showed, indeed, the MRR positive lesion showed Gleason 3 plus 4, only 2 millimeters, and a rather uh, large gland. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Dr. Klein. Um, you know, how would you cancel this patient? And do you think um, if he does choose surveillance, is, is MR-guided biopsy sufficient alone in this, in this situation? Yeah. <clears throat> so surveillance is certainly an option in my view, but you need a confirmatory test to determine, to answer the question is, what's the biology of his Gleason's 3 plus 4? Right? You don't know if there's cribriform glands that you missed or not, and you don't know just based on the histology, what the molecular features of the cancer are. So I think this is a perfect candidate for genomic testing. Well, let's pull the audience. Who, who thinks he's a candidate for surveillance? Not necessarily your preferred approach, but who would surveil a, a, you know, a low volume 3 plus 4 in a 70-year-old patient? Yeah, I certainly think surveillance is reasonable. I mean, this gentleman was interested in, his sexual, in preserving his sexual function, and so I certainly think it was reasonable. And, and then in terms of what the next step would be, um, you know, he's already had a high-quality biopsy with MRI. I guess your only other approach here would be a genomic test. And so in this case, we did genomics, and his GPS score was, was really high, okay? His GPS score was 50. You can see he has very high risks of having adverse pathology. And so I told him, I said, sir, look, you know, you have a high-quality biopsy, which just shows a small focus uh, of Gleason 3 plus 4. Um, the other areas of the prostate were all negative. Um, indeed, you have a GPS score that's high. I'm not sure uh, how this relates to your current risk of having bad pathology, um, but, you know, I have a lot of confidence in MRI. So, you know, he, he was not enthusiastic about treatment, and he ultimately decided to go on observation. Um, so he was followed for the next four years. His PSA remained relatively stable. He had a biopsy at year two, which showed uh, with MRI, when the MRI was unchanged, uh, and, a, and a biopsy of two years just showed a small amount of Gleason 3 plus 4, consistent with what we saw in the diagnostic biopsy. And then at year four, he comes in, and there's progressive lesion on MRI. You can see the, the right mid-gland lesion has now gone from 5 millimeters to 17 millimeters, possible seminal vesicle invasion and a biopsy shows an increase in quantity of Gleason 3 plus 4. Importantly, there was no cribriform pattern or introductal carcinoma present on the biopsy specimen, but the, the appearance on MRI was very, very concerning to me. And this just shows you here, so the bottom figures are the appearance of the lesion in 2015, and the upper figure shows what's happening, you know, two years later, a substantial growth of this lesion with some suspicion of seminal vesicle invasion. So he ultimately elected to undergo robotic prostatectomy. He had bilateral seminal vessel invasion, Gleason 4 plus 3, rather large tumor volume. He had a positive margin in the periseminal vesicle soft tissue with negative nodes. And so I think this, admitted, this made a great impression on me, is that, you know, the MRI, the biopsy, the diagnosis, even at two years, uh, uh, didn't really uh, point to any concerns about how this cancer was going to behave. And this GPS score five years earlier essentially told us what was going to happen to this cancer. So, um, you know, 
I've, I've really embraced genomics and based in part on, on cases like this. Um, and I, it tells you that there is a lag between what you see histologically exactly. with what's going on at, at the biological level. So there is a good story to this case is he's a year out. Uh, he has not had any secondary therapy. His PSA is undetectable and he's, he's continent and potent. So um, I think I got lucky uh, with this case. Um, so um, I think there's a lot of controversy certainly about to selecting patients for active surveillance, what are the best tools? But I think there's even more controversy about how we should um, uh, recommend treatment in patients on active surveillance. There's no hard and fast rules here. And so Dr. Klein, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it varies patient to patient, but what are the rules of thumb that you use to decide upon whether a patient should be treated? Um, uh, um, progression from Gleason 6 to Gleason's 4 plus 3, and um, presence of a PIRADS-5 lesion that is biopsy Gleason 7, I think is reasonable, and uh, a genomic test that shows an increase in the biologic potential of the tumor, almost regardless of what the histology shows. And I think that's pretty close with what I uh, recommend to patients. And the, the way I, I look at it is, um, how would I, how, if a patient does have changes in their cancer uh, on surveillance, I ask myself, if this patient had walked through the door with these features, would I still recommend treatment to them? So even there's a little bit more cancer on biopsy, even there's a little now, a little bit of pattern four. If I ask myself, you know, if this patient came to see me the first time with these clinical parameters, would I, would I discourage active surveillance? So that's kind of a, a general rule of thumb that I use in my mind. And all the things that Dr. Klein has indicated are things that I would say are major uh, deal breakers in terms of surveillance. Primary pattern four, and I think increasingly if, if the pathologist declares the presence of cribriform or introductory carcinoma, and certainly a very high uh, GPS score on surveillance would all be very concerning to me. And so here's our, here are two cases that are seemingly behaving in the exact same way that at least at the genomic level there's a very different out, uh, result and I think um, nicely shows a very different outcome. So this is a healthy 63-year-old male. You can see he's had a slight rise in his PSA. Uh, his prostate exam was negative, and an outside urologist did a biopsy, just showed a small focus of Gleason 6. He's continent, he's potent, he has really minimal low urinary tract symptoms. He was interested in surveillance, and the urologist um, recommended a repeat biopsy, which was negative. So this is seemingly the ideal candidate uh, for observation. He was then followed every six months for the next several years with PSAs that remained pretty stable. At two years, he underwent a repeat biopsy that showed stable disease, small focus of Gleason 6 in the same sextant, and he remained on active surveillance. At this point, he relocated to Cleveland, and he wanted me to assume his care. At this point, he's now on surveillance for four years, and, and the protocol that I typically employ is I do a biopsy every two years with MRI. So I said, sir, you're not four years. I think it's time that we reevaluate your cancer with an MR and MR guided biopsy. And in this case, the MRI showed no visible targets. And so Dr. Klein, would you recommend a biopsy in this situation? Yeah, I think the collected data, which you've reviewed very nicely, indicates that you can't rely on a negative MR. Yeah, again, it, it rule, you know, a rule of thumb, MRI is only as valuable as the tissue that you obtain. So. A negative MRI doesn't allow you to obtain any tissue, so I don't think it has uh, a lot of value in this situation. So he underwent a 12-core biopsy, which shows 
uh, you know, a fair, a modest amount of Gleason 3 plus 4, 6 millimeters in the right mid gland, and the right apex just shows uh, Gleason 6. So, question to the audience. Um, he's now 67, but he is healthy. He started out with very low risk prostate cancer, and now four years into it, despite a stable PSA and a negative MRI, uh, he does have, you know, evidence of reclassification. So, who would recommend treatment to this patient? Sure. So the question was, is, as in, in retrospect, did we have his prior biopsies reviewed? And yes, we did. And it was a Gleason 6 from, from the onset. There's another question? Okay. So who wants to treat him? Who wants to continue to observe him? Who's unsure and wants to do further testing? Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I assume at this point you would want to do a genomic test, Dr. Yeah, the key issue is what's the biology of his cancer, and that's what genomic testing will answer. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, you know, in my mind, you know, I, my general treatment philosophy is I don't treat any Gleason 6s, provided that you've demonstrated that, in fact, that's what's going on. But I think the value of genomics here is really in the 3 plus 4 category, in my opinion, because there's so much variation in behavior, and what you're trying to gain here is some biological insight into how this cancer is likely to behave in the future. So we did a genomic test, uh, and in this case, his GPS score was 24. And if you look at the bottom figure, um, the GPS score for this gentleman amongst all intermediate risk patients certainly falls on the favorable side of, of, the, of the normal distribution. So I said, sir, look, you have an intermediate risk cancer. It's low volume. Um, the genomic score suggests you're not going to behave in a more aggressive way. I think you can remain on active surveillance. Uh, and then uh, uh, he went to a cocktail party. And a bunch of his friends told him he was crazy. Uh, he should have his cancer treated. So he came back and elected to have his prostate removed. And it just showed a very small organ-confined Gleason 3 plus 4 cancer. So again, in this case, genomics predicted a low risk of adverse pathology, which was found to be the case ultimately on surgery. Now you can say, well, you've given him a high likelihood of cure. Uh, but I, I think, you know, it's questionable whether we needed to abandon surveillance. So I'll give you a very similar case with a very, very different outcome. Go ahead. Question, Dr. Klein. No. Oh, okay. Pardon me. Okay. Just, just so, hanging on every word. <laughs> so very similar situation. This is a healthy 66-year-old male. He's been on active surveillance for four years uh, for low-volume intermediate risk prostate cancer. You can see his PSA over four years' time has been fairly stable. Uh, going back to 2013, um, he had an initial biopsy which showed Gleason 3 plus 4 in 4 of 12 cores, but indeed uh, only two of those four cores actually showed 3 plus 4. It was 4 millimeters in total. Uh, he's, he's claustrophobic and does not tolerate an MRI, so we just simply repeated his biopsy. Usually with, I do this within the first six months. It, it ruled out really any, any aggressive features. Actually, we couldn't even demonstrate 3 plus 4 on the repeat biopsy. It just showed a little bit of Gleason 6. So I thought surveillance was reasonable. Um, I brought him back at two years' time, repeated his 12-core biopsy, which was negative. So I said, look, sir, you know, we're doing, we're, it seems like we're doing well. Um, I would certainly stay the course with respect to observation. He was content with that. And now he comes back at year four. His PSA was stable. His prostate exam was negative. Again, he refuses an MRI, and a prostate biopsy now shows essentially very similar to what we saw in his diagnostic biopsy. Same sextant, a little bit of Gleason 7. The pathologist says there's no cribriform pattern here, there's no Gleason pattern 4, or very little Gleason pattern 4 here, a little bit of perineal invasion. 
So it really looks like his disease is otherwise stable. So um, I'll put you on the spot, Dr. Klein. Um, are you satisfied that we should stay on surveillance at this point? Um, no, I'm, I'm concerned about the introductory cancer and the three plus four disease. And I have to say, I'd be inclined to recommend treatment for this patient. So there was, there was no cribriform here. Yeah, but it says atypical introductal proliferation. That worries me a little bit. Fair so, enough. Uh, and plus he has peridoral invasion, which depending upon which series you look at has predictive value. So if you look at the Hopkins data and the artificial intelligence model they're developing, PNI has some predictive value. So. I, if he asked me what I would do, I would say I'd be treated. If he wanted to go on surveillance, I think this is a great case for genomic testing. Again, it will answer the question for you, what's the biology? Yeah, I, I think you know, we, what we haven't gathered from this patient to date is, is an assessment of his biology. And I think this is where this, I think that the genomics, at least in my opinion, is, is of great use. So we recommend that he undergo genomic testing. And lo and behold, uh, his GPS score was sky high. Uh, you can see his risk of adverse pathology is extremely high. And again, look at the normal distribution. This patient is an outlier. Um, I have, this is not a unique case in my practice. I have many, many patients who um, fall into this category of these outliers on a genomic um, uh, scale. And so clearly this impacted on how we would recommend treatment. But if you look at just simply on face value, you know, perhaps with the absence of the, the introductal proliferation, but this patient is really no different than the last patient, and that he just has a little bit of Gleason 3 plus 4 on, on surveillance biopsy. So we took him to surgery, and was found to have established extraprostatic extension. He was Gleason 4 plus 3, tertiary pattern 5 with introductal carcinoma, rather large tumor volume, fortunately negative nodes and negative margins. Again, the genomics here really moved the needle in important directions about whether this patient was safe to stay on surveillance or whether she, he should be treated. What would be interesting, obviously, is if we can go back in time and look at what that GPS score was on his diagnostic biopsy. Yes. We may have had the answer, you know, four years earlier. You could do that. You could uh, ask Genomic Health to do that, Don. Yes? <laughs> there you go. Okay. So um, this is my, my summary points about MR and MR-guided biopsy. It seems like the timing is, is, couldn't be better. So I think it's unclear if MR-guided biopsy alone can be safely used in all clinical contexts. I, I told you about my concerns about the precision study, um, um, also my concerns about the, the, uh, the invisibility, if you will, cribriform pattern uh, on MRI. And likewise, I think it's unclear if MR alone can be used to determine the need both for a diagnostic biopsy or surveillance biopsy on surveillance. It does require uh, substantial radiologic expertise uh, we were certainly one of the early adopters of the uh, ultrasound fusion biopsy using the urinav, and I certainly think there is a learning curve there, uh, particularly for the anterior lesions at the apex and base, and obviously there's uh, substantial cost and inconvenience related to this. About using genomics versus MRI, I think my thoughts mirror those very nicely from Dr. Klein's. I think these are complementary, uh, not competing technologies. Um, the nice thing about genomics, it doesn't require any expertise with respect to pathology and radiology. And I think for me, the value of genomics is it distinguishes between important biological differences among the Gleason 3 plus 4s. As I mentioned, the histologic subtypes like cribriform or introductory carcinoma may have also an important role. I think this requires further validation. And uh, when one considers in what clinical context would I favor MR-guided biopsy, I think it's in situations where I'm concerned about undergrading. These are patients with high PSA levels, high PSA densities, you know, seemingly a poor quality biopsy on the basis of few cores, 
or in those select patients with high volume Gleason 6 where you're worried there may be an underlying component of pattern 4 that's missed. Any comments about that, Dr. Klein? No, I think you're absolutely on the mark. Um, I would only say, again, the concern about expert pathology review for cribriform and intraductal. You know, if, you, if that's called correctly, you certainly shouldn't ignore it. If it's not called, I think it's likely that genomic tests will pick up that biology even if it's either not seen on the biopsy or not recognized. So I think there's a slight advantage there. But I agree with you completely. Question in the front. So the question is, uh, are, they, are they fusion or cognitive fusion? Um, we, we use the Uranap system since 2012, I think. Yeah, not and quite that long ago. So That's the Uranap is the ultrasound fusion. MR fusion. It's fusion. Yeah. Fusion, not cognitive, although the available data does not suggest a huge difference between the two of them. Uh, we're doing transrectal. There are systems that are being developed to do a transperineal biopsy as well. Um, I, if you were there at the uh, tumor board at the plenary session on Friday, I had a nice case of an anterior, you know, pyrads 5 lesion that was challenging to diagnose by a transrectal approach. And with the transperineal approach, that's certainly one advantage of that. Question here. and six, correct? That's exactly what the UCLA data showed, yeah. yeah. Yes, correct. Yes. Again, I, I think the, the utility of any adjunctive test in the very low risk patient is, is, is likely to be a small. very, very small. For the low-risk patients who, I mean, my treatment philosophy is if, you know, if you have a long life expectancy, uh, I think any pattern for, I think, should be treated. Um, uh, that may change, I think, if we get, you know, more data about cribriform and such. So in those situations where it's a high-volume Gleason 6, you know, I just, I'm really looking that there may be an underlying component of pattern 4 that we've just missed. So in that situation, I would tend to favor MR. But in the you know, older patient, the typical patient we see, you know, the 60 to 7-year-old, uh, I really want to know more about the biology. You know, because you know, for the guy whose time horizon is 30 years, uh, probably any pattern 4 to me is, is important enough to mandate treatment. But when your time horizon shortens based on his age and life expectancy, what you really want to know is you know, over what we, a time horizon of 20 years or 15 years, we want to know biologically how this cancer can behave. And so I think that's really where the genomics is. That's the, really the sweet spot in my mind. Have you had any problems getting the, the oncocytes covered off the insurance perspective? You know, I, I, uh, it's covered by Medicare, so the patient's over 65, it's not an issue. 
Um, for the patients uh, under 65, seldom do I encounter a problem. I don't know, Dr. Klein, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, so um, what happens, and Don, please correct me if I'm wrong. The, when, the, the, when you order an archetype in a patient with private insurance, the company will contact the insurance company and determine what level it's covered at. And in some instances, they'll accept what that payment is. And if it's not covered at all, then they'll contact the patient and talk with them and negotiate a fee. I think very few people are paying list price. Is that fair? Yeah. So it really has not been an issue in practice. And I, that's also true of all the companies that make these. That's just been the way that it has been, a, been approached. This podcast is available for CME by going to the AUA University, auau.auanet.org.